me just say uh, before we get started here this morning that uh, before I get started uh, that there are just uh, there are some remaining invitations for those of you who may have someone coming to your door. Uh, you want to give them something that would be uh, perhaps life changing. Invitations to the Living Nativity are still available out on the Welcome Center there. So if you don't have any and you're uh, anticipating um, people at your door, then those are good things to hand out. Please take all of them. They're no good leaving them here uh, in the building. Let's bow in prayer. Lord, as we acknowledge the fact that we are up against a foe, we thank you that there indeed is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, indeed is living, it is powerful, it is sharper than a two-edged sword. Pierces and penetrates deep into the heart and minds of all of us, even discerning the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. So we pray, Father, that you might use your word in a powerful way this day. Help us, we pray, to see Christ and to be impressed with all that he is to us in the gospel. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Charles Spurgeon made an interesting statement regarding the Word of God and the indestructible nature of the Scriptures and the power of the Scriptures. He said this, The Word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend it. All you have to do is let the lion loose. And the lion will defend itself. I find that quote helpful in this Reformation Sunday because I want us to take some time this morning to consider What happens when the lion of Scripture is let loose? Now, I know your notes uh, before you are not uh, very helpful. Uh, I acknowledge that that's uh, my choice to not try to commit myself to an outline that still was being developed on uh, Thursday and even on Friday. I was out of town earlier in the week, and uh, Thursday morning, uh, my agenda was not the same as God's agenda, and so I wasn't able to do the things I had planned to do. So... I'll give you the three points in just a second here. What I want us to look at is I want us to ask a question. What happens when the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, Ephesians chapter 6, what happens when it's removed from its scabbard, from its sheath? What happens when the Bible is clearly proclaimed and shared with an ever-increasing circle of people? I want us to attempt to answer that question this morning by reflecting on two biblical examples. And so here's your outline. The first biblical example is an Old Testament example of individuals who sought to bring change to their generation by, again, loosing, as it were, the lion of God's word. And then the second point is to look at a New Testament example of another individual who was involved in unleashing God's word. And then thirdly, concluding with a historical example from 16th century England. And we'll look at some of the actual history of what transpired in the 1500s. Let's look, first of all, at an Old Testament example and turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah 8. If you have a pew Bible, we encourage you to use that and turn to page 587. Page number 587 or Nehemiah chapter 8. Verse 1, and all the people gathered as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate, 
And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Let me back up and just explain a little bit what's happening here. These events recorded in Nehemiah uh, 8 and 9 have to do with Israelites, Jews, who had been scattered and living for 70 years under the rule and reign of Babylon. They've been taken out of their homeland. Their whole city had been destroyed. And uh, they've now regathered 70 years later, and they've been trying to rebuild the wall. They've finished building the wall now around the city that had been fallen down. And they are there uh, to sort of regroup and try to start over again, being the people of God in what was at one time the capital city there. And so they've all gathered now into the square within the newly rebuilt city walls. And this is what we read, verse 2. Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding. And on the first day of the seventh month, he read from it, from the square, which was in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood at the wooden podium, which they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mathaliah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah. And on his right hand, Padiah, Mishael, Malkiah, uh, Hashum, uh, and then as on and on and on they go, Zechariah, uh, sorry, Hashbanadah, Zechariah, Meshulam on his left hand. Then Ezra opened the book on the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. And then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherbiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. Verse 8. And they read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. Now, for several generations, these people had received little, if any, biblical instruction. They did not know the story of redemption. They did not heard a sermon. They had not heard a prophet speak, saying, Thus says the Lord. And the result was spiritual malaise. Most of the people had concluded that based on the events of the last 70 years, with the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple with their being taken as captives to all these foreign lands and pagan nations, they had concluded that God had unjustly abandoned His people and gone back on His word. And they viewed God as disinterested, demanding, and unreliable. And therefore, they had no desire, really, to honor Him or serve Him, because that desire had evaporated years ago because of the captivity. And now under the direction of Nehemiah, the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, all the residents there are gathered. Those who had any kind of understanding were gathered there so they could listen to the reading of the law of Moses. For the first time in generation, they're hearing the word. Hour after hour, people stood 
You think it's standing long time as we sing. Imagine standing for hour after hour listening to someone read. But that's what they did. Listening to the Word of God. Verse 3. And so this exercise was not merely a reading ritual using the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the old Hebrew Scripture, but it was an earnest effort to make sure that the Word of God was clearly explained and making sure that people understood what they were reading in the Word. That's what verse 8 says of chapter 8. It indicates that along with the public reading of Scripture, there was a public clarification of that Scripture. As he says there, they read from the law of God, verse, verse 8, translating or explaining to give the sense so that they understood the reading. Now these leaders devoted themselves to instructing this gathered assembly so that they not only heard God's word, but they got it. They comprehended it. They saw how the things connected and it made sense to them. And so these dejected people who were able now to comprehend for the first time in a long, long, long time, they finally heard and understood God's word. After years of ignoring God's word and ignoring God's ways, a new era began. And if you look at verses 9 to 12, I don't have time to read all these things through, but it's clear, by the way, it came right out of one of the phrases of a, a, a song we sang, the joy of the Lord is our strength, comes right out of this passage. As he talks about there's joy now, there's celebration among the people as they begin to hear and remember and know this is what God has done. The efforts of these men to make Scripture clear brought about dramatic results. If you keep reading through the text, you began to see that the people began to put into practice the things that they read, what Scripture said that they ought to be doing. For example, in verse 12, we see that they observed the Feast of the Tabernacles. And several days later, they gathered again in order to hear the Word proclaimed. And this time, in verse 3 of chapter 9, they confessed their sins and worshipped the Lord their God. Now it's gotten personal where they begin to realize that they themselves need to acknowledge what's going on in their own hearts to God. The hearing and the understanding of God's Word brought about in their hearts genuine repentance. Along with the remorse over their sin, it's very important to hear this, my friend, along with the remorse over their sin, they also experienced a renewed sense of the gracious goodness of God. I wish I could take the time to expound all of chapter 9 to you, but I urge you to read that sometime today. Read the entire prayer and understand as you read it and see that these people clearly were affirming not only the repeated failings and the foolish choices of their forefathers had made despite all the ways in which God had shown them so much goodness, so much faithfulness, so many areas of provision for them. Again and again, verse 16 is an example of this, 916. But they, our fathers, acted arrogantly. They became stubborn and would not listen to your commandments. And they refused to listen. Skipping on down to verse 26. They became disobedient, rebelled against you, and they cast your law behind their backs. They killed your prophets who had admonished them. It's on and on and on. The cycle goes. God does all these things and they just turn and went their own way. The overall theme of the prayer of confession is utter amazement that God had kept His covenant. Verse 8 of chapter 9 says such a thing. You did find in His heart faithful before you, did make a covenant to Him to give 
the land of the Canaanite, Hittite, Amorite, Perizzite, Jebusite, Girgashite, to give it to his descendants. You have fulfilled your promise. You are righteous. That was an example at one time. And then verses 31 and 32. Nevertheless, in your great compassion, you did not make an end of these people or forsake them, for you are a gracious and compassionate God. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does keep covenant and loving kindness, do not let all the hardship seem insignificant before you. They start crying out in the midst of where they are, but they're acknowledging God in His grace, His mercy shown to these people again and again and again. Notice verse 17, one of the great theme, thematic verses that appears a number of times throughout the Scriptures. Verse 17 of chapter 9. They acknowledge in their celebration that God is a God of forgiveness, who is gracious and compassionate. A word that's repeated in this text, I counted up one, two, three, four, five, seven or eight times repeated in this one chapter. God is compassionate. He is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Verse 33 provides a fitting summary to this acknowledgement. If they heard the word and heard about what God has done, verse 33, you are just in all that has come upon us. They finally acknowledge, Lord, you're not, you're not the one who's in fault. We are the ones who are at fault. Uh, you have dealt faithfully, but we have acted wickedly. And then verse 37, and right now we are in great distress. They're crying out to God. Their humble hearts are seeking God earnestly, sincerely, and humbly. I wonder if you've come recently to God with a humble, sincere, earnest acknowledgement of God's graciousness and your unworthiness, having recently read the Word and it had that impact on your heart. The effect of unleashing God's word is powerful. The God of mercy and the God of grace who is revealed to a generation of people whose hearts have become embittered against God, who had gone through so many miseries with regard to the captivity that had caused them so much heartache and suffering that they had become lukewarm in their devotion to God, that didn't really have a desire to want to zeal, to serve Him. They were going through the motions, and that why, that's why the, the Nehemiah talks about it. It's the joy of the Lord is your strength. You guys have no strength because you have no joy. Why? Because they lost sight of who God was, His graciousness to them. The unleashing of God's Word humbles proud hearts. It convicts the hard-hearted. It awakens joy in those who are distraught and discouraged. It is the, the unleashing of God's Word that imparts life to those who are spiritually dead. It enlightens the blind. It shows the way to those who are lost. It restores the soul. It reveals the wonders of God's grace. If you're reading the Word, my friend, and you're reading it till you understand it, hopefully those things will begin to happen in your heart, as you become and have a fresh sense of amazement at the grace and mercy of God, particularly in the Jesus Christ, who is re the revelation of God, as we read about the wonderful salvation fulfilled in Him. I want to turn our focus not only to an Old Testament example, I want us to also consider a New Testament example 
of the unleashing of God's Word. And this is going to take us now to uh, Timothy. So you might want to find 2 Timothy in your Bible. And while you're turning there, we're going to look at the writings of the Apostle Paul just for a second. The Apostle Paul referred to himself not once, twice, three times, four times he refers to himself in his writings as the prisoner of Jesus Christ. Twice in Ephesians, twice in Philemon. After Paul's life-changing conversion on the way to Damascus, on the road to Damascus, Paul was incarcerated and chained for extended periods of time, even though he had not committed any serious capital offenses. You recall he, he and Silas, his traveling buddy, when they were in the town of Philippi, were beaten and they were chained, thrown into prison. However, an earthquake opened the doors and they escaped on that occasion. And then while he was in Jerusalem, Paul was arrested. And while held there, there was a, a scheme, there was a plot to take his life. And when word was discovered about that, he was transferred secretly by night under tremendous amounts of security and guards. He was taken from Jerusalem as a person under arrest and taken for, to Caesarea and held there for two years, waiting till he could finally get a trial before Caesar. And then he was uh, left two years under house arrest in Rome. So that's at least four years right there he was held under arrest. We also know that he was released, and then later on in his life, at the latter part of his life, he was sat in a prison cell before he was finally executed. Now, under the providential hand of God, these occasions provided many opportunities to unleash the Word of God. Opportunities to see that the gospel does indeed go forward and transforming lives, even though Paul himself was bound to certain areas while he was under these various forms of arrest. Of the 13 letters that Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we know he wrote more letters than that, but the 13 that were written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit during his ministry, four of them were written while he was under house arrest in Rome. The books of Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and Philemon. And then there was one book he wrote at the end of his life while he was awaiting execution. That's the book of 2 Timothy. I hope you've got it in front of you there. We're going to look at the text here in just a second. As one who suffered extensively for the gospel, Paul found joy in the midst of all of his imprisonments, all of his times of which he was held in these various forms of restriction. He nonetheless found joy in the midst of all these trials and tribulations. We never have record of Paul complaining or offering objections in his writings about the unfairness of the treatment that he was receiving. And what was it that enabled him to assure his readers that they also could be filled with joy, even though he was currently as a prisoner for so much of his ministry time? I believe it was his confidence that God was at work through his word, a word that could not be held and could not be contained by the opposition of those who sought to uh, oppose Paul's ministry. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we'll begin in verse 8. Listen to Paul's perspective now. This is now the final time of his imprisonment, and his, he knows he's about to be executed. Remember Jesus Christ, he writes to Timothy, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, 
for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal. Watch this phrase. But the word of God is not imprisoned. I love that. Paul wanted the recipients of his epistles to know that the schemes of those fellow Jews of Paul's who had tried to make sure he was arrested and and, uh, they wanted to kill him. And that's what led him eventually to all these steps, eventually to Rome. The chains of these Roman soldiers to whom he is actually uh, held there could not prevent the gospel from expanding outward and transforming lives. Listen to what Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 1 regarding this kind of perspective about his imprisonment. He says, now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances, what circumstances is he talking about? Well, he makes it clear in a second. These circumstances of mine have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment, uh, imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known through the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. What's he saying? Paul's imprisonment actually created new opportunities for the gospel to impact the lives of people who normally would not have been exposed to Paul's preaching. Paul's incarceration emboldened his fellow believers so that as they saw him be faithful and him rejoicing, even though he's in prison, they realized that they need to uh, have courage to face the threats of their persecution. And had Paul remained Saul the Pharisee, had he remained the one who was the persecutor of Christians, Paul knew he never would have gone to prison. But here he is in prison, and he's there because he had a passion. He had a heart's desire. He had compassion for those who were his like uh, fellow Jews, yes, but also for those who were the non-Jews, those who were perceived as the people who, as a Pharisee, he would have avoided. He would have gone around the block to not get near them. Here he is now in prison because he was had a passion to make sure that people unlike him would hear the good news of Christ. And therefore, he suffered in prison for those who initially he had sought to avoid and hated. It's a reminder that the gospel is able to transform natural animosities according to the world's standards and turn them upside down. Christ suffered and died for the likes of self-righteous people like you and me and Saul the Pharisee. And while in prison, Paul suffered for his former enemies, Gentile Romans, who thankfully he saw some of those become born again, not of seed which is perishable, but of imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring Word of God. It's the Word that he shared, even within prison, began to change dramatically things that otherwise could not be explained. It's not coincidental that Luke concluded the second book that he wrote, the book of Acts, with these words, chapter 28. We read that Paul stayed two full years in his own rented quarters. That's the house arrest. He was welcoming all who came to him, preaching or proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness And the last word of the book, unhindered. Unhindered. His teaching continued to go forward. And try as they might, the opponents of the gospel cannot prevent Christ from building his church. 
The multiplying principle that Paul reminded Timothy, that's very important for him, it's very important for us to understand with regard to the unleashing of God's Word, is the principle found in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. Maybe you want to turn there and read that one as well. 2 Timothy 2, 2. It's all twos. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. Best way to see God's Word expand in its impact is to follow this. He says, the things which you have heard from me. So it starts with Paul, and then it goes to Timothy. The things you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, Timothy and those of his who also were hearing that from his generation, these entrust to faithful men, that's the third level, who will be able to teach others also. There's the fourth level. It's like concentric circles, one passing on to the other, to the other, and then to the other. And that is the power of the Word of God. And I wonder if there's, can you think of any situation that you've been in where you think to yourself, well, you feel like the Word of God has been hindered from somehow working in your life, its sanctifying effect in making you more like Christ? Can you think of any situation you could be in? You say, well, I've been in some tough situations recently. Well, have you been in prison? Yet Paul was rejoicing, sensing that what? The Word of God is not imprisoned. The Word of God is able to work in whatever situation you find yourself in. And God can oftentimes use the suffering you're going through as a form within which you can now minister to other people so that they might see that you have rejoicing, you're rejoicing in Christ. Why? Because the gospel is so wonderful and so uh, hope-filled areas of your life through the gospel that you've now become a person that doesn't respond like most people do when you suffer. I wonder if you could think of a situation where the Word of God cannot impact your life. Is the Word of God imprisoned and chained and somehow bound so that it cannot work in your situation? I hope that you'll have the kind of confidence that Paul had to see that the Word of God is not chained. It is not imprisoned. It indeed is powerful. It's powerful as it shared one life to another to another and seeing it change even in society, by the power and grace of God. Third thing I want to mention here is just a brief brief example of the power of how God's Word was unleashed in a time of period we call the Reformation. A historical example of the unleashing of God's Word, I want to take us to the early 1500s in England. In the situation at that time, the only available Bibles that were circulating among the people, were all written in Latin. How many of you could have read that book now? If, you, if all you had to read was the Latin Bible, how many of you could read a Latin Bible? Okay, well, I'm in the same group. I never studied Latin. They, some reason they told me French. I don't know why they ever taught me French. I had to take French in junior high and high school. Anyway, just like you, the average person in England couldn't read Latin. Only a small number of highly educated people could read and understand the Latin version called the Vulgate. Because a law had been passed 100 years earlier in 1408, it made it illegal to teach the Bible in English or to even possess an English Bible. Not surprisingly, if there is no Bible that's known by anybody, the average person, and only a few people know the Bible in its form in Latin, not surprising that corruption in the church began to be rampant. The Catholic priests who led Mass 
were barely able to pronounce the Latin liturgy. And they were also, unfortunately, even more tragically, known for fathering illegitimate children. Widespread. The ignorance of the Bible among the clergy was shocking. They didn't even know what the Bible taught, most of them, many of them. And one man devoted himself to unleashing the Word of God to his generation. His name, William Tyndale. He mentioned to a local cleric his heart's passion and desire. I've sort of upgraded his language. I didn't give you the old English. Here's generally what he said. If God spares my life, he told this cleric, before many years pass, I will cause a boy who drives the plow, that is a farmer boy, a laborer, a common laborer working out in the fields, I will cause a boy who drives the plow to know more of the Scriptures than you do. He's talking now to a a member of the clergy. His heart's passion and desire was to see that the average common person who works hard in the fields would be able to read the Word of God and understand it in English. So as Tyndale studied, a recently published Greek New Testament by Erasmus, he began to realize there are a number of words that we have in our Latin Bibles that don't line up with what the Greek text says. He began to notice that in the Latin Vulgate, the word Priest should have been translated elder. And so he translated it elder instead of priest. And then he also noticed in various texts that the Latin Vulgate had been translated do penance. When the real word was the word in Greek for repentance. Big difference. And then it became obvious why the church at that point, the church at that time, did not want to see things change. Because this was now going to challenge the whole system was going to begin to sort of fall apart as the clarity of Scripture was becoming more clearly seen. So here at the time, Tyndale went through the proper channels. As a member in the local church, he sought the officials at that time and said, listen, can you have your support to encouraging the translation of the Word of God into English from the Greek into English so everybody can understand his teaching? Church officials rejected the request. As a matter of fact, a person who had done it secretly and had been working on translating the Bible, he all he had to work with was the Latin Vulgate, was John Wycliffe. He was a brave soul who, as he read the Scriptures, began to realize everything I've been taught is not what the Scriptures have been teaching. And he began to make it known that uh, he was uh, a person who rejected transubstantiation, rejected the teachings about purgatory, and he was condemned as a heretic. And yet, this was the beginnings of changes as, they, as the unleashing of God's Word came. Tyndale, hearing all that, was well aware of the dangers that he faced. And so he, nonetheless, with the passion to make sure the Word of God went forward to unleash it, he left his homeland. He left England. He went to the continent of Europe. He translated the Bible there directly from the Hebrew and from the Greek into accurate, understandable English. And Tyndale never married never owned a home, and for 10 years he lived as a fugitive, on the run, dodging spies, going from city to city to city. Copies of his translation after a while, the early translation he put together, were printed using the new technology of the day, the printing press. 
And so they began to sort of mass produce these things and they were being smuggled in back into England only to be burned and only to be destroyed. A fellow Englishman at later on, years later, befriended Tyndale only then to betray him, to turn him into the authorities where he was arrested. He remained in prison for one and a half years. During that time, we actually have in existence a letter that he wrote from that prison imprisonment requesting what? Warmer clothes and to bring the Hebrew books so that he could keep studying and translating during his time in prison. It sounds very much similar to the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy. And so at the age of 42, having been accused and charges drawn up that he had maintained that faith alone justifies, charges that he maintained and believed that forgiveness of sins and embraced the mercy offered in the gospel was enough for salvation, he was condemned for that view. He was condemned because he denied that there's any purgatory. He was condemned because he affirmed that neither the virgin nor the saints pray for us in their own person. He was condemned as a heretic. He was strangled to death. His body was burned at the stake, October the 6th, 1536. His last words reportedly were these. What would you pray as your last prayer after devoting your life, your life to the translation of the word of God to see it unleashed? His prayer was this, Lord, open the eyes of the king of England. Open the eyes of the king of England. What is he saying? He's saying, help the king to realize he's not helping his people by hindering the, the, uh, the uh, permission, the laws that, allow not, that forbid them to own their own copies of the Bible in English. Well, that was his prayer. What's he really praying? He's praying for his people of England that they might enjoy the riches of God's word in their own language. Well, soon after his death, a guy named Miles Coverdale published the first ever complete Bible in English. And he did so with the approval of King Henry VIII. Therefore, opening the door for its distribution, opening the door for many, many, many Bibles to be therefore available to the people of that generation. And interestingly enough, much of the translation that Coverdale finished was dependent upon Tyndale's translation. As has been a number of other translations, including the King James Bible, which is made up, and that was translated in 1611, 90% of a King James Bible were the words really of Tyndale. He had already blazed the trail. He had already laid it out there, translating it from the original language into English. And of that, 75% of the revised standard version, some of you may have heard of that version, 75% of that, Tyndale's language. He had already composed the thing, which, by the way, is today's English standard version is another adaptation of the RSV, the Rosiah Standard Version. What am I saying here? Almost every English New Testament until recently was merely a revision of Tyndale. What's the point? The Word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend it. All you have to do is let it loose, and the lion will defend itself. Let's pray. Father, as we hear of another reminder of how valuable your word is, how powerful your word is, how enduring your word is, 
how transforming your word is. I pray that you might burden our hearts and give us a thirst and an appetite to consume your word, to read it carefully, to ponder it, to meditate upon it, to cherish it, to make it our delight. We pray that we might feast our minds upon it, that we might feed our souls with it. We pray, Father, that you might uh, help us who are saturated with so much information in our culture. Tons of messages are coming at us every day. Lord, we pray that your word would be unleashed, that we would find the opportunities ourselves to feed our souls with your word and to see our lives change because of the word and its powerful effect upon us. And Lord, that that we would then be able to share your word with other people around us, even in the midst of trials and sufferings and difficulties that we may face. Father, we pray that we might understand anew and afresh, if not for the first time, the glories of the gospel that revealed to us Christ and all that he did for us and offering himself on the cross, dying for our sins, being raised again on the third day, according to the scripture, that we might be truly declared right with you and given new life and giving hope through Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that you might use your word in our lives. May it be unleashed in our generation, Lord. May we be effective in helping make sure that the sword of the Spirit is indeed taken up and used and engaged in battle and not left in the scabbard, unused, neglected, and overlooked. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.